Well, as always, at Christmas time, uh, I'm trying to, to uh, tell the same old story in a fresh and new way. And for this series of messages at Christmas time, we've been taking a slightly different angle on the Christmas story. Uh, many, you all know the story, you know, of Joseph and Mary and the journey to Bethlehem and the, and the baby that was born, the Christ child. But what you may not re- recall is all of the visions and the dreams, the Christmas dreams and visions that were associated with the birth of Christ. And we began looking at this uh, topic of Christmas dreams and Christmas visions last week. And I encourage you to, to take a look at that message if, uh, if you missed it by chance. And this week, this Sunday, we're going to continue on in that message, part two of our uh, of our little Christmas series here, Christmas dreams and Christmas visions. And uh, we're what we're hoping to accomplish is this for last Sunday and this Sunday. So uh, on December 13th and now today, December the 20th, we're focusing in on the dreams and the visions that occurred around the birth of Jesus Christ. And then after that, next Sunday, we're going to ask a really interesting question. We're going to ask the uh, we're going to have the, the message uh, dreams and visions. Do they have merit today? In other words, you know, well, if there was purpose and meaning to the dreams and visions around the time of Christ's birth, what merit, if any, should we give to modern day dreams and visions, whether our own or another's? But our focus today is not on that. We'll get to that next week. Our focus today is on the dreams and visions that surrounded the Christmas story. Last week, we looked at the vision of Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 and the vision of Mary, the mother of Jesus in Luke 1. And then this Sunday, our goal, our hope is to look at uh, the dreams and visions of some others. We have the dreams of Joseph. In uh, Matthew 1 and 2, we have the vision of the shepherds in Luke 2 and the dream of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. We're asking four questions of these dreams and visions, four questions together. We're asking this, what is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference? We're asking, what are some noteworthy characteristics of the divine dreams and visions We're asking, thirdly, what was the purpose of the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Jesus? What what role did they have? What purpose did they serve? And fourth and finally, how do these dreams and visions actually give us hope this Christmas? You know, how does this apply to me? Like, what what does it matter that these dreams happened 2,000 years ago? What can I walk out of here today and say, okay, that means something for me as well? So these are our four questions, and I want to start with a little bit of recap, a little bit from last week. In answering that first question, let's zero in on that for a second. What is a dream? What is a vision? And is there a difference? We said this last week, and it's already on your handout again. We said this last week. The terms for dream and vision are sometimes used interchangeably in the Scriptures. Secondly, however, the New Testament usually reserves the term dream for a one-sided declaration from the Lord or His messenger to a person's mind while they're sleeping. Okay? A one-sided, a one-sided conversation, a one-sided declaration, not, not so much dialogue and interaction, but this is the, the word of the Lord or, or the messenger of the Lord speaking directly to that person's uh, mind in their dream. 
The New Testament generally uses the term vision for a conscious, full sensory, supernatural experience that often allows for dialogue between a person and the Lord or his messenger. So contrary to a dream, a vision is something that happens not while they're asleep, but while they're very much awake and it's full sensory. Uh, oftentimes they can feel, they can, they can see, they can touch, they can hear, they can speak. Uh, there's, there's, there's full sensation taking place. And there's oftentimes dialogue taking place between the Lord or His messenger and the one who receives that vision. Not always, but usually. We're also saying this. Both experiences draw the person into a heightened spiritual realm that often temporarily transforms their physical surroundings Uh, Other people may or may not be able to witness the vision of another, even though they might be standing right next to the person receiving that vision. I think we said most prominently of Paul in the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Paul gets a vision. He looks up and he sees Christ. And the other men that are with him, they hear the Lord, but they can't see him. And so Paul was having this very conscious, very much awake and alive uh, experience with the Lord in a vision. And yet the other men could only hear. They couldn't see it. Very interesting. Today, we're going to look at a few dreams and one more vision. And as, uh, as we mentioned last week, too, I just want to get to these. A little bit of recap again from a little bit from last week is what about the characteristics? Okay, the characteristics from last week, these are the characteristics we came up with. Number one, we said that fear is generally the first emotion a person experiences when seeing a divine vision. The first thing they usually are is just afraid. Secondly, these visions and dreams are routinely accompanied by physically verifiable evidence, meaning the message that gets communicated to the one receiving the dream or vision, that message usually includes some kind of physically verifiable evidence. Mary. You will conceive. You will, uh, you will. You will conceive of the Holy Spirit and bear a child. Well, when Mary conceives and recognizes, but I'm still a virgin. She can recognize, physically verify that that vision was true. Zacharias, Zacharias, and back in Luke one, Zacharias, your wife in her very old age will conceive and bear a son, John the Baptist. Zacharias can then go on after that vision and physically verify whether that vision actually. Uh, was, was authentic, was genuine. So they're routinely accompanied by physically verifiable evidence. Thirdly, confidence in the reliability of the divine vision in and of itself is not guaranteed. We, we Remember we talked about how we, we, we're always under the impression that if an angel of the Lord came right now and spoke to us, well then we would just know exactly what to do with our lives, right? Not necessarily. Because you see Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, you read his story, you read the vision of an angel standing before him and speaking to him, giving him instructions. And Zacharias says, I'm not so sure. How can I know what you're saying is true? How can I believe that? And so so confidence, human confidence in the reliability of a divine dream or vision is not always guaranteed. Don't always assume that, oh, Lord, I just wish you would speak to me and then it would be so clear. It's often the case, actually, that when those dreams and visions occurred, the human recipient still had many questions, still was at times distrusting, still was confused. Mary asked, how can this be? How can these things happen? 
<clears throat> so it doesn't clear up everything and it doesn't instill ultimate confidence in a human. And the purposes. What about some of the purposes we looked at last week? We said, number one, dreams and visions confirm answers to prayer. Number two, they give knowledge of future events. Number three, they give instruction for future action. Number four, they encourage. Number five, they foretell what is seemingly impossible. And number six, they bring about praise and honor to the Lord. Okay, that was a mouthful. That was a big recap and I apologize. But here's what we're doing. We are doing what's called inductive Bible study. And it's a little bit of a different method. In inductive Bible study, you're starting with the question. You're starting with the question, you know, dreams and visions, what are their characteristics? What are their purposes? What are they? You're starting with the question, and then you go to the Bible, you pick it up, you start reading about dreams and visions, and you start adding answers. You start inducting answers from the text and putting them up on the screen. And as you get more answers, you start adding more answers. And as you get answers that kind of modify existing answers, you modify existing answers. That's called inductive Bible study. It's a unique kind of method, but it's actually a really good kind of method. In fact, it's probably the best kind of method because you're not coming with preconceptions. You're not coming with answers. Instead, you're coming with questions and letting the scriptures put answers on the screen for us. And so that's what we're accomplishing now. And today we are going to, by the inductive method, add more answers to these questions. And we're going to modify some of these answers to these questions so that we can get even more of an accurate perception of what is going on with the dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Christ. So first, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at one final vision today, and then we're going to go on to dreams. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, we're going to look at the vision of the shepherds surrounding the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, we'll stop at 14 for now. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid, or as, as uh, Charles Schultz says, they were sore afraid. Nobody got that? Oh, come on. You've never watched the Peanuts Christmas story here? And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. All right. Nobody gets that. That's just awful. Thank you, honey. I love you, babe. I love you. You're the only one that gets my jokes. Verse 10, then the angel said to them, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the uh, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men. Okay. Here's our vision. Basic observations. What are some noteworthy characteristics that we see in these divine dreams and visions? Well, we see two that are already confirmed from what we've previously studied. Take a look. We see this. We see, number one, we see that fear is involved. It's coming. I know it's coming. 
We see number one in the characteristics there that fear is generally the first emotion a person experiences when seeing a divine vision. So we see that confirmed again. It says they were greatly afraid. Number two, we see that it was routinely accompanied by physically verifiable evidence. What did it say in verse 12? It said, this will be the sign to you. You're going to go to Bethlehem and you're going to find a baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Physically verifiable evidence of this vision. Okay, but there's also uh, another item that I just want to point out. I, I think it's often something that we presume, but it's not always the case. Notice this, that divine dreams and visions, they can occur during times of great spiritual worship or during ordinary circumstances. I just wanted to bring that out. You know, we looked at Zacharias in Luke 1. And they were praying in the temple. And they were, they were praying. And, and Zacharias was going into the temple and offering the, the incense. And, and it was just a time of deep and earnest spiritual worship. They were seeking the Lord God wholeheartedly. <coughs> and a vision happened. Okay? Well, maybe we might always think, well, visions and dreams, they'll only occur when you're in tune with the Lord. When you're striving with Him. When you're in great spiritual worship. No. Story of the shepherds, they're sitting out in the fields. They're watching over their flocks by night, and all of a sudden, boom, the Lord appears to them. And so I think it's an interesting characteristic of a dream and vision here in the Scriptures that sometimes it occurs during great spiritual worship. Other times it can occur during ordinary circumstances. What about the purposes of dreams and visions surrounding the birth of Christ? Well, we see this. We see that they certainly gave knowledge of uh, uh, they were certainly encouraging. They said, hey, I bring you glad tidings. The Savior's been born. So that confirms that it's also giving them knowledge of 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 an event, but not just a future event. I I think that number two item there, I think we need to modify that a little bit. Actually, we need to say that it gives knowledge of present and future events. So go ahead and write that down in your outline. It's not just visions and dreams. They're not just foretelling. But they also speak of what has happened right here, right now, and declare it to that individual or that group of people. Gives knowledge of present and future events. Let's continue on in the story. Verse 15. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let's go. Let's now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They made widely known this vision which was told them concerning this child. And, and all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. And here we see, once again, just confirmation on our outline with respect to the purposes. It brought about the, to, to praise and honor the Lord. A vision, a divine vision, a genuine divine vision brings about praise and honor to the Lord. They, they started telling everybody about it and everybody marveled at it. And then they went off in their way after having seen the Christ child celebrating and praising God for what He had done. Okay, some simple answers here, but let's let's dig a little deeper. 
Let's look at some dreams. Up until this point, we actually have not looked at dreams. We've only looked at divine visions. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And now we're going to look at some divine dreams surrounding the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and we'll go to verse 21. It says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay. What do we see here? What do we see? What what can we uh, induce from this passage? Well, we see some confirmation of what we've already looked at in the purposes of divine dreams and visions. We see this. Number two is is there. We see uh, the giving of knowledge for a future event. The the, the angel of the Lord says, hey, Joseph, your wife, your 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 fiance, the one you are to marry already is with child and she's with child of the Holy Spirit. He was given knowledge of a future event. And number five, uh, number five, we might remark, he was also um, told what was seemingly impossible. She's conceived of the Holy Spirit. He says, what? Are you kidding? That, that, is that possible? How, how can this happen? And we also see number three, we, we, we see instructions for future action that, that he was to name him Jesus and he was to, to take Mary to be his wife But we see more than that, actually. And I want to mend that a little bit. I want to change that to this. Not just to give instructions, but to motivate and to give instructions for future action. The angel of the Lord said, look, Joseph, don't leave her. Don't abandon her. I know it's cultural for you to do that. I know it's normal for you to do that, to think, wait a minute, she's pregnant and it wasn't me. And and what happened here? And I'm just going to I'm I'm just I'm just going to leave. I'm going to abandon the marriage. And the angel of the Lord says, no, I want to motivate your action here. I want to give you instructions for what you need to be doing to preserve the birth of this child. And so there was motivation taking place in this divine dream. Continuing on, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. We see more motivation here, right? But we also see uh, a seventh purpose that I want to make note of. A seventh purpose of divine dreams and visions, and this it is this on your outline to confirm an Old Testament promise. To confirm an Old Testament promise. 
We might, we might even amend that to a biblical promise. To confirm a promise of the Lord. That's what happened here. The divine vision, was, the, the, excuse me, the divine dream was necessary so that Joseph would not abandon Mary. So that she, if he, and he, if he had abandoned her, who knows what would have become of her. Her culture in that day and age would have considered stoning her. They would have considered killing her for being pregnant out of wedlock. <coughs> but no, the divine dream occurred. And it confirmed the Old Testament promise. And Joseph was motivated to fulfill this. To fulfill the word of the Lord. And it brought about that motivation. What about a second dream? What about the dream of the wise men? Take a look at the next chapter. Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3. And then moving on to verse 8. It says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And then Herod, the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Jumping down now to verse 8. And Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and they worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures. They presented him to get gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then... Being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. You know, I, uh, Jack asked me to, uh, to speak at his uh, company party. Uh, they had a Christmas uh, luncheon at their company, and he always says, uh, gracious to invite me and to have me uh, come and just share uh, really a word from the Lord, the message of Christmas to his, to his company. And this was the passage that I spoke on, as a matter of fact. And I, I, I made mention of the fact that, you know, realize this. These wise men, when they entered before the king, King Herod, they were coming before the ruler of all the land. Yes, Caesar was, was, was in Rome, but Herod controlled that territory. He was the ruler. He was the king. He was the boss. And when the boss gives orders, when the king gives orders to someone, to some guests that come into his territory, those orders are always followed. They're always followed. They're, they're heeded. They're paid attention to. If not, the people are banished. They're kicked out. And when Herod instructed them, he, he took these wise men in. He discussed with them, hey, what have you seen in the sky? Oh, the, the Christ child. Where is he? And they say, well, he might, he's over here. He says, go and find him and tell me where he is that I may worship him. The boss was giving instructions. And these guys went out. And I made the point at, at Jack's luncheon. And I think we should just, this should just resonate with us. There's no good reason. There is no good reason the wise men would not have returned to Herod had it not been for this dream. 
There's no reason. There's no reason that these men, guests of the nation, would have walked into a nation not their own, listened to an order from their king, and gone off and purposefully and willingly disobeyed that order, that direction from the boss, had it not been for divine intervention. And I don't know about you, but that, it's just all the more reason for the authenticity of the Christmas story. All the more reason for us to have confidence in the Word of God. We look at this book and we think, well, is it, is it entirely true? Yes, it is entirely true. It, is, it, it makes sense. The pieces come together. There's no reason for them not to return to Herod had it not been for a divine dream. The Christmas story rings true yet again. What about this dream? What was so... Uh, what was so influential about it? What did it do to these wise men? You know, not much is said about this dream. We always talk about what they gave to Jesus as the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But what does this dream, uh, what does it tell us? What are some of the characteristics? What are some of the purposes? Well, I took note of this. Uh, on the purposes of divine dreams and visions, we note number three here for sure. It motivated and gave instruction for future Action. We see this time and time again. The, the wise men, no good reason not to return to Herod. Except for the fact that in a dream, God told them, don't go back to the king. It motivated. It gave instruction for future action, which ultimately preserved and protected the birth of Jesus Christ. But also it, does, it did a... a, a a second thing, which, which really I want to hone in on here, it warned of danger and offered protection. Write that down. Number eight, this divine dream was done specifically to warn of danger and to offer protection. And we see this time and time again in the scriptures with respect to visions and dreams. Often it is used to warn of danger and offer protection. And so we should take note of that as we add this to the list. And this eighth item is of, a special, uh, of special significance as we come to these final two dreams that we're going to look at today in our Scriptures. So turn now to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And let's look at, at another dream now following uh, the birth of Christ. Again to Joseph, it says this. Verse 13, Now when they, the wise men, had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So we had the wise men, now we have Joseph. Saying, this was the angel said, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled uh, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, this is a telling dream. Notice how many, how many purposes align with this one. Take a look. Out of this dream, we see this. We see clearly there was knowledge of, of future events, present and future events, really. The Lord is saying, Joseph, Herod's coming to kill your boy. He's coming to kill your son. You need to leave. You need to leave now. He motivated that action. It says, at, at, at the pain of death, you need to leave. 
It's urgent that you leave now, giving instructions for future action. It confirmed an Old Testament promise. There's no good reason for Jesus Christ to have gone to Egypt other than the fact that this dream occurred and compelled the the royal family to go to Egypt and to remain there until it was safe again. Confirming an Old Testament promise. And of course, to warn of danger and offer protection. And now the final set of dreams. Verse 19 to 23. And then we're going to start to put the pieces together here. Verses 19 to 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Another dream. Saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then Joseph arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream again, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Two dreams in this final stage. What about... Let's go back to that question number two here. We've been on number three for a while. What about the characteristics? I want to I bring out this last item here. It's kind of a silly one, but I didn't know how else to put it, really. Like driving directions. Like, like driving directions. Think of your Google map or your map quest. You print it out, right? Visions and dreams can point the way to a final destination or simply where to make the next turn in life. If you'll notice, in this text we just read, the Lord says, hey, go back to Israel, final destination. But as Joseph is going there, there's a little bit of a detour. It says, oh, hey, by the way, wait, as, now as you're entering, take, take a right and go up to Galilee. And so there's, there's, uh, there's, there's a measure of, OK, as sometimes sometimes divine dreams and visions, they give kind of the final answer, you know, that the final destination, this is the end all be all. This is where you need to go in life. This is what you need to accomplish, Moses. Take the people out of Israel. Divine vision, burning bush. You know, so sometimes it's just this ultimate end goal. And then other times it's take a right. Take a left. Go up to Galilee. Sometimes it's for a smaller purpose. Sometimes it's for a more ordinary circumstance. Shouldn't always assume that a divine vision and a divine dream would be something that's just cataclysmic, ultimately life transforming. Sometimes it's a small change, a small turn. How about the purposes? Well, we see here re- reinforced yet again. Numbers two, three, and number eight. Given knowledge of future events. Hey, or present events. Herod's dead. Joseph wouldn't have known that from Egypt. Herod's dead. You can go back now. Motivated that and gave instructions for future action, but warned of danger as he got closer into Israel. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's, a, there's another king. And this king will also seek to destroy you. And so you need to turn to the north. You need to turn to Galilee. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, why didn't you highlight number seven to confirm an Old Testament promise, Right? Wasn't that in there? Wasn't that in that last text we read? I mean, didn't, didn't we see that? Look, at, look again at the, the text here. Verse 23, didn't it confirm an Old Testament promise? 
And Joseph came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay? So why didn't we highlight that last part? Why didn't we make mention of that? Why didn't, why, why didn't we add that to the list? Well, a couple things. Take note of this. As we zero in for a second on that verse. I want to say this. Matthew. Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, writes approvingly that Jesus' Nazarene heritage was spoken of by the prophets. Right? He writes approvingly. He says, this is a, this is a good thing. Look what happened. And it fulfilled it. Here's the, here's the kicker. That prophecy, he shall be called a Nazarene, is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. It's nowhere to be found. Say, what? what? Read it. Read Genesis to Malachi. You will never find those words. You won't even find a hint of those words. You won't find anything that remotely compares to that statement in the Old Testament or in the New. It'll just be right here, right there, by Matthew. Matthew says, plain and simple, Joseph came, dwelt in the land called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he, Jesus, the Christ, shall be called a Nazarene. And yet we cannot find this anywhere in the Word of God. Why do I bring this up? What, would, what do we make of that? You know, it could be the case, it very much could be the case, and some scholars suspect, that in fact, this was a prophecy recorded down in writing, in written form, by an Old Testament prophet, and that that writing was somehow destroyed. That it somehow didn't make it into our Bibles. That somehow the, the papyri that it was written on was, was eliminated, was destroyed, was tarnished. Some put that as, a, as an alternative explanation for this. That's an option. But I want to say what, what, what we can be sure of. Let's say, what can we be sure of about this? Of this we can be clear. Matthew must have believed this. Number one, this prophecy came from a reputable source. He must have believed that or else he wouldn't have quoted it. This prophecy came from a reputable source. And number two, we know this to be sure. This prophecy met sufficient criteria to be deemed an authentic word from God. This prophecy met sufficient criteria to be deemed an authentic word from God. You say, well, what criteria is that? What criteria would that be? Well, from my vantage point, it would be the same criteria that we've been talking about all along. It would meet some of the characteristics, for instance, of a prophecy. It would meet this characteristic, for instance. Number, let's go ahead and bring that up. And it's coming. It's going to meet the characteristic, number two there, of being routinely accompanied by physically verifiable evidence. He shall be called a Nazarene. You will know the, authentic, the authenticity of this divine message because I'm providing you with physically verifiable evidence. You can find Him in Nazareth one day. 
you will find the Christ in Nazareth one day. And it also fulfills some of the purposes of a divine uh, message from the Lord. Take a look at this. Number, uh, numbers 2 and 5. It gives knowledge of, of future events. You're going to find the Christ in Nazareth. Okay, it meets that. But also it foretells what is seemingly impossible. You say, well, why is that? Why, why is that impossible that he could be from Nazareth? I'll tell you why. Because in the first century, Nazareth was a good-for-nothing town. In the first century, Nazareth is like saying Jesus is going to come from Compton to us. We'd be like, what? Compton? Why would he come out of Compton? Wouldn't he come out of, you know, Mission Viejo or San Juan Capistrano? Something, something glorious like those towns. Compton? Give me a break. When this prophet, whoever he was, and it also mentions a plural of the prophets, but usually that, that can also mean just, just one said it. But when this prophet, whoever he was, said, the Christ shall be called a Nazarene, the people looked at him and said, are you crazy? That is, that's kooky. That's crazy. Enough. That's crazy talk. Of course he's not going to come from Nazareth. He's going to come from Jerusalem. He's going to come from the royal city. Not Nazareth. Bunch of thugs up there. Seemingly impossible. And Nathaniel also, uh, he said to Philip in John 1, he said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So we, we see there very clearly this perception of Nazareth. Why do I spend so much time on this? Sometimes I don't know. But I, I, I think this is significant. And I, I, I wrote it down because I really I want you to read this. The inclusion of the prophecy of Matthew 2.23 in our Bibles today is extraordinary. It tells us that the Jewish people came to accept a divinely inspired prophetic message that was not not recorded in their Old Testament Scriptures. But they gained common acceptance among them because one, it came from someone highly respected in the community, and two, it aligned closely with biblical patterns of other divine messages. And it would seem to me, if, 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 if that's an accurate statement, it would seem to me that unless we have clear and convincing evidence to the contrary, the inclusion of the prophecy of Matthew 2.23 should cause all of us to take a fresh look, a new look, at the merits of other claims of dreams and visions that come from reputable sources and align carefully with the purposes and characteristics of divine messages. And this is exactly what we're going to do next week. Next week's message is entitled, Dreams and Visions, Do They Have Merit Today? And we'll be answering that question, what, what merit should we give to modern day dreams and visions, whether our own or another's? And I would venture to say that most of us in this room know someone who have claimed to had a divine dream or vision. I would say that most of us in this room would say, yeah, I know somebody who says that they've had that. And I would guess that a few of us, 
a fair percentage of us in this room believe that you yourself have, in some manner, shape, or form, received a divine message from the Lord, be it through a dream or a vision. I would, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would venture to say that 10 to 30% of you would probably raise your hand if I asked if you've had what you believe to be a message from the Lord. I personally have a very few respected friends and family, reputable sources, who have told me their story. And I think that I think we need to deal with these stories. I think we need to ask legitimate questions about them. I think we need to compare these stories that, that people have, even today, with some of the characteristics and some of the purposes of divine messages that we've seen thus far in the Scriptures. We need to deal with these stories and not ignore them or categorically deny their existence or their value. To do that would be like erasing the prophecy of Matthew 2.23. Because it wasn't recorded in the Scriptures. No, instead it came from a reputable source and it met the criteria so that Matthew felt confident in including it. Having said that, um, this, is, this is different for me and different for you. Having said that, I actually want to invite you to share your story. If you're willing, I'd like, I'd like you to email me uh, if, you're, if you're up for it. Your story of a, maybe a dream or a vision-like experience that, that you believe you've had. And I want you to feel safe in sharing that story. Uh, I will totally respect your privacy. And I, I'll keep it anonymous. You know, it just, just between you and me and your family... Um, but if you're willing that I uh, could perhaps use it anonymously or something like that uh, in, in the forthcoming message next Sunday, um, that's something that I'd be interested in doing. To evaluate what the Lord is saying based on, is it a reputable source? Does it meet the characteristics and purposes of a divine message? Whatever the case may be, I'd like to hear your story. And I know for some of you, you might be thinking, whoa, Whoa, wait a minute. I mean, don't, you know, Coast Bible Church, we say that this is the Word of God and this is the Word of God alone. Yes, this is the Word of God. But Matthew 2.23 is also the Word of the Lord and it's nowhere to be found from Genesis to Malachi. And so it, it causes me to... to at least give a fair critique, give a fair shake, if you will, of what people have experienced, of what some of my people that I have utter respect for, people who, I, I know of one Christian philosopher, this guy has no good reason, I've sat under him in teaching in classes, he has no good reason to share what he does in one of his books uh, because he's such a logical, such a, a left brain kind of guy. And he's just, you know, boom, ba boom, ba boom, and, he, and he's experienced some of these things. And I think to myself, I absolutely respect and trust this man. It's difficult for me to think that this man is purposefully leading me astray. So what is it? What is it that he's experienced from the Lord? And how can we measure its value, its merit, for today? Those are legitimate questions. And those deserve legitimate answers. And not just a categorical, eh, that's not, that's not authentic. That wouldn't be fair. And not just a categorical, well, that, just, that means nothing. That wouldn't be fair either. And so let's approach 
this subject openly and honestly, inductively, and let the pieces fall. All right. Merry Christmas. This is different. This is a different Christmas message. This is a different kind of take on the Scriptures. We've been looking at the divine dreams and the visions that surrounded the birth of Christ. At the end of the day, though, I want to leave you with something practical. I want, to, I want you to walk out here saying, so that's what it means for Christmas. And this is what I want to leave you with. I want to ask, ask that final question there, number four. The fourth question on our, on our outline is, what, what kind of hope? What, kind, what are these dreams and visions? How do they give us hope this Christmas? And so let's take a look at that question And the first answer to that on your outline is this. How do these dreams and visions give us hope this Christmas? Number one, the angelic vision announcing Jesus' birth was not given to kings or the wealthy, but to lowly shepherds, demonstrating once again that the story of Christmas and the hope of redemption it brings is for all people. All people. Number two, the Lord preserved His Word. Think about this. Were it not for the divine dreams... Joseph would have never taken the child to Egypt. He would have never done that. So also, God keeps His promises to us, especially His promise to give eternal life to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And thirdly and finally, the Lord divinely protected His Son. Were it not for the divine dreams, notice this, if, if the divine dream never happened, Joseph would have abandoned Mary, they would have remained if he didn't abandon him, it hurt. he would have remained in Bethlehem and Herod would have killed Jesus upon learning his whereabouts from the wise men. But a dream happened. A dream happened to Joseph. A dream happened to the wise men. And protection was in order. So also the Lord offers divine protection from, to us. Protection from sin. Protection from death. To all who believe in His Son. Folks, the message of Christmas is simple. God Almighty came down to earth as a baby to go to the cross some 33 years later and to die on that cross for your sins and mine, rising again from the dead, that you and I, by simply believing in Him, might have everlasting life. That's the plain and simple message of Christmas. It's a beautiful message. It's a story of God's provision, a story of God's protection, a story of God's life in us, given when we believe in Jesus Christ. I pray that this Christmas you would come to have faith in the child who was born 2,000 years ago in a lowly manger. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that these divine dreams and visions were essential to the Christmas story. They were essential, Lord. You had to intervene in the way that You did to make possible the salvation that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. And God, we thank You for intervening. We thank You for giving visions to Zacharias and Mary and the shepherds and dreams to Joseph and the wise men. Visions and dreams which preserved Your Word, protected Your Son, 
and permitted the salvation of all mankind to those who believe in Jesus Christ. God, we recognize the merits of those dreams and visions. And we thank You for them and we celebrate how You have protected and preserved and permitted Your Son to come to our hearts by simply believing in Him. I pray, Lord, this Christmas that no one here would leave not having come to faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We celebrate His birth. We thank You for His coming. And Lord, we commit also to living in the manner that He has called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.